Father, I thank you for what you do here every week. Lord, I thank you for in your wisdom and your love and your goodness and your power, you call us together collectively every single week because we need it. And this is a physical, tangible reminder through the relationships that we have here, through the songs, the music, the, the power that you put in music and the gift that that is, the gift of your word, the gift of, of your truth, your love for us in the gospel of Jesus just proclaimed and enjoyed and celebrated and taken in and digested and metabolized into our lives. Lord, thank you for calling us to this time. And, and Lord, I pray that you would bless this time. Lord, you've, you've promised that you are with your people in a special way when we gather to worship you like this. And so, Lord, we just acknowledge that. We thank you. And as Emily said this morning, we don't know exactly what we need. We think we do. We think that we know always our, our deepest needs. And usually those have to do with our most felt circumstances. But we actually don't know. And you do. And so, Lord, we just... We open ourselves to you. We welcome you to come and, and do whatever it is that we really need because you're a good father. You're a good lover. You're a good husband. You're a good protector. You're a good king. You're a good ruler. You are a good older brother. You're a good guide and teacher and counselor. And so you give us exactly what we need, exactly how we need to receive it, exactly when we need to receive it. And whether that's big and loud, and there's going to be a moment in this service that already has happened or will happen where someone really feels your power in a big and loud way, or whether it is, is quiet and subtle and gentle, you, you come to all of us, Lord, and we, we are so thankful for that. Would you just open us to, to know and, and receive you as you're doing that? So, Lord, we ask, I ask that as, as I preach your word that you would... Um, despite my failings and my shortcomings and my weaknesses and my limitations, that your word would go out powerfully and that it would change all of our hearts. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in this passage, this, we were doing the sermon series, The Summer of Love, talking about the Song of Songs. It's the most beautiful, most amazing song that has ever been written because of the beauty of covenant love. And that's what this celebrates. The beauty of covenant love between a man and a woman, but also the beauty of covenant love in an even deeper way between God and his people. And so as we, we've walked through this song, we've walked through some different themes, and today we're talking about love maturing and, and how love gets better with age, how love gets better uh, like a fine wine because of the tannins, you know, the tannins. Um, I don't know anything about wine. Um, but so where we're going with this passage is like what I tell a lot of people in premarital counseling when we talk about sex, that hopefully your wedding night is going to be the worst sex you ever have with each other because that's the least that you know each other. And, you know, there's a, a lie that's being perpetuated in our culture that the greatest sex is with somebody who's a total stranger because it's exciting and it's wild and you don't even know what you're getting into, and it's amazing. But the reality is the exact opposite. Um, the greatest sex is between people who know and love and are committed to each other. Because like fine wine, it does get better with age. And not just sex, but the whole relationship. Because that is how we were designed to function, because we were created in God's image. And God is a triune God who is always in community, 
who is, is perpetually giving and receiving and loving within the three persons of the Trinity. And that's what he has done as he has created humanity, as he's invited us into that perpetual giving and receiving. And that's why he's given us covenant marriage as a picture of what our relationship is like with him, because he said, this side of the new heavens, the new earth, you cannot fully understand, you cannot fully grasp the relationship that I'm inviting you into, but, but you get glimpses and you get tastes and you, I'm telling you what it's gonna be like in pictures that you can understand in your limited perspective here, but then one day you will experience fully. And so the same is true between a man and a woman, the same is true between us and our Jesus. There's these moments in relationships, these moments in human love relationships uh, where at the beginning there's all these big grand gestures. Like if you're somebody who's dating or somebody who's married and you think about you know, the first few dates and there's always these grand gestures of you know, surprise and, and big dates and all this stuff, but if, if that continued unchanged into the future, that would not be a beautiful picture. That would, that would mean that something is wrong because there's some stunted growth because we're still dependent on these big grand gestures. And what really happens is these things are necessary both in a, a human relationship and our relationship with Jesus, that there are these moments, and if you're somebody who's walked with Jesus for many years, uh, a lot of you have had this experience, and, and it's true of my life, where there were some big moments with him in the very beginning that some of those have, have come up again and some of those have not. Some of those were sort of one-time things where he really grabbed my attention in a very powerful, supernatural way. And, and a lot of times that is front-loaded in our relationship with him. And, and the fact that it doesn't happen as much as we age and, and grow in maturity with him is not a sign that he's left us or that he's, he's bored of us. It's a sign that our relationship with him is maturing. Because in a human relationship and in our relationship with God, if all we have are those big grand moments, then we are now not growing in intimacy with this other person at all. We're just dependent on these big moments and we're looking for the next big fix. But what those moments do in both of those relationships is they serve as anchors. They serve as anchor points to draw you in to the other person so that you can get to the really good stuff which is the giving and receiving, the being known more fully, the deeper intimacy, the subtleties of the other person, the appreciation of, of all of these depths and intricacies that you, you just can't see at the beginning because you haven't spent enough time. You just don't know. And so that, that's where we're going in this passage. You know, to be wowed is one thing, but to be transformed by love and to be able to love somebody in return is, is something even deeper. So uh, I'm going to ask, I think, John Gleason, come on up and read this passage. And if you all have your Bibles, we're in, we're in Song of Songs, chapters 6 and 7, those two chapters. Where has your beloved gone, O most beautiful among women? Where has your beloved turned, that we may seek him with you? <clears throat> My beloved has gone down to his garden, to the bed of spices, to graze in the gardens and gather lilies. I am my beloved, and my beloved is mine. He grazes among the lilies. You are beautiful as Terza, my love, lovely as Jerusalem, awesome as an army of banners. 
Turn away your eyes from me, for they overwhelm me. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of ewes that have come up from the washing. All of them bear twins. Not one among them has lost its young. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. There are 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgins without number. My dove, my perfect one, is the only one, the only one of her mother, pure to her who bore her. The young women saw her and called her blessed, the queens and concubines also, and they praised her. Who is this who looks down like the dawn, beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun, awesome as an army with banners? I went down to the nut orchard to look at the blossoms of the valley, to see whether the vines had budded, whether the pomegranates were in bloom. Before I was aware, my desire set among the chariots of my kinsmen, a prince. Return, return, O Shalomite, return, return, that we may look upon you. Why should you look upon the Shalomite as upon a dance before two armies? How beautiful are your feet and sandals, O noble daughter. Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master hand. Your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Your breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are pools in Heshbon by the gates of Bath Ribbon. Your nose is like the Tower of Lebanon, which looks towards Damascus. Your head crowns you like caramel, and your flowing locks are like purple. A king is held captive in the tresses. How beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. Your stature is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters. I say I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. O oh, may your breasts be like the clusters of a vine, and the scent of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best wine. It goes down smooth me for my beloved, gliding over lips and teeth. I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. Come, my beloved, let us go into the fields and lodge in the villages. Let us go out early to the vineyards and see whether the vines have budded, whether the great blossoms have opened and the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. The mandrakes give forth fragrance, and beside our doors are all choice fruits, new as well as old, which I have laid up for you, O my beloved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, John. Okay, so as we watch this couple's maturing love, we pick up at the beginning of chapter six, and as we ended with this last week, but this woman has, her love for her beloved has failed. And she has essentially sinned against him. And so then this question at the beginning of chapter six, um, where has he gone now? Now that you've treated him like this, what's different? How is, how is he going to be toward you? Is he going to be the same? Is he still going to love you? And she says, yes, essentially, um, as she reflects on who he is and she reflects on his love for her, she says, oh yeah, he's, he hasn't left. He hasn't changed. His love for me has, has stayed the same. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. And he grazes or pastures among the lilies. And so this, this, is, this is what makes this maturing love possible. You know, because we, we've all seen plenty of marriages, some of them very close to us, that as they age, it doesn't get better. It gets worse and they grow further apart. Because... Any relationship is, there is no such thing as neutral. There is no such thing as no movement. It's always moving in one direction or another. You're always moving toward deeper intimacy or you're moving further apart. 
And one of the keys of, of this working, this covenant love that grows and matures and becomes more beautiful, working the way that God designed it to, is this security that she talks about, the security that she experiences from her beloved. When she sins against him, he doesn't treat her the way that she deserves because of her behavior. He has made a covenant commitment to love her to the end until death do us part. And so it's not that issues never get addressed, but it's that the way that he is toward her, the way that he treats her is not passive aggressive. It's not holding something over her head. It's his love is unaffected by her lack of love for him because he has decided to love her. He has set his affection upon her. And that is the security that is absolutely essential in any relationship in order to deepen in trust and intimacy and growth and grow something beautiful is, and and especially, this is where we're going, with our relationship with Jesus. You know, if, if I think that Jesus's feelings toward me or his stance toward me or his love for me changes at all with my behavior, or my thoughts, or the way that I choose to spend my time, I'm in big trouble. And and there is nothing that can happen between us because of the fear that grows and the shame that grows. So it is absolutely essential in any relationship that this security is there of that this love between us does not rise and fall with my behavior. It's not dependent upon me. It's dependent upon the commitment that the other person has made and that I've made to that other person. And so after this question, this this wondering that she has of, you know, where is he going to be? How is he going to be toward me? And they say, where do you think he is? And she says, actually, now that I've reflected upon it, I know where he is. He has never left the garden of our love. He is down there shepherding and pastoring me. He is down there loving me. And now we hear him, we get the verification for the first time. The first voice, the first time that he speaks after this episode is just gushing love for her. You are beautiful as Terza, my love. Lovely as Jerusalem, awesome as an army with banners. And what I want y'all to notice about this whole passage, starting in verse four and, and going essentially to the end of the chapter, is it's how it's the same and how it's different from the times that he's gushed on her in the past. You know, some of, the, some of the things that he says to her are verbatim the same from what he has said to her before their marriage. And, um, and he's saying, essentially, you are still beautiful to me. You are still beautiful to me as the day that we got married, but that is not all. You do not just remain this beautiful woman who is still beautiful to me, who I, who I find desirable, who I find attractive. You, are, you have become even more like these, this first uh, verse here, verse four, Terza is a city in the northern kingdom. Uh, can we get the lights on, by the way? Can somebody f- flip the switch back there? I feel like it's getting a little dark. Um, Terza is a city in the northern kingdom that is known for their beautiful archi- architecture. And so the word Terza means beautiful or pleasant. And, and the, it was a city particularly known for these strong, strong and beautiful buildings. And so he is saying, you are, you are like this city. You are strong and you are beautiful. And Jerusalem, uh, of course, is the capital. And Jerusalem means city of peace. And so essentially what he's saying, and then he says, you are awesome. Like you are terrifying. You are awesome as an army marching with war banners. 
So he's saying, not only are you beautiful, but you are powerful. And the love that you have, our love is powerful. And there's a power that you have over me because of, of how I am affected by our relationship. This is like, he, he's going just these deeper depths and these greater dimensions of who this woman is and how beautiful and awesome and, and powerful she is in his life. You are strong. You are multifaceted. There's so much about you that I'm still learning and still uncovering. And you are terrifying. Turn your gaze away from me. There's something so powerful in you. And you are still as beautiful as, as you were on our wedding day. And then this is really interesting when he says, uh, he, he talks about in verse 8, the 60 queens, the 80 concubines, virgins without number. You know, I, I don't know when Solomon wrote this, but we know from scripture that Solomon started off really well. And then the thing that made him go south for the later part of his life was just his love for all sorts of women and all sorts of women from foreign places. And he had so many, I mean, he had more than this. He had more wives, more concubines as the king of, of um, Judah. And um, so I, I don't know, you know, when Solomon is reflecting on this, but essentially what he's saying is there will never be an end of the parade of beautiful faces in this world. There will always be people, many, many people who are younger and beautiful. I mean, go, go walk on 12 South on a Saturday afternoon. Like there is never going to be an end to more young and beautiful women. But what he is saying is that now is very shallow to me. And that is less attractive to me because you are the only one. And what he says here is, um, my dove, my perfect one is the only one, the only one of her mother. What he's saying is now I'm getting to know you. Like I've gotten to know you. And there's a depth there that when, when you live a life where you're just out there fishing for like the next pretty face, you're going to miss everything. Because there's a depth, there's a beauty, there's a richness, there's a mining for gold that happens when you commit yourself to somebody and you hang on through the suffering, through the pain, through the conflict, through all the things that are going to come, you're going to get somewhere that the people who stay on the surface never get to experience. And what he's saying is you can parade these women up and down the street in front of me all that you want, but they do not hold a candle to you because I know you now. I don't just know your face, but I, and I don't just know your body, but I know your heart, I know your soul, and it is so, so much deeper, this relationship that we have, and so much richer um, than, than what could be had with just that shallow attraction and the quickly moving from one person to another. And then he turns and says, in fact, these women... Remember at the beginning of this whole song, she is so self-conscious. She's like, I'm from the country. I had to work out in the fields. You are sophisticated women of the royal city. And I'm embarrassed. I'm a little bit insecure standing next to you. And now these women who are so beautiful and so sophisticated are looking at her. And they're saying, they're praising her. And the words, the language that they use for her is very significant. They say, who is this who looks down like the dawn? Beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun, awesome as an army with banners. So now these women are praising her, and the words that they're using, the moon, the sun, 
uh, these were deities in other cultures. And so essentially what they're saying is, who is this woman? She is a goddess. And if you want to think about it like this, they're seeing something in her that they don't have. And these women, you know, if we want to take it to modern day equivalent, they had all the resources. These women would have had all the procedures and all the products and all the jewelry and all the clothing and all the fitness and all the the social connections, all of that. But the one thing they didn't have was this man's dedicated covenant love to her. They didn't have this beloved choosing them and saying, I'm with you and we are going deep together in this love. And they're realizing all of the things that we look for to make us beautiful do not hold a candle to that because that is what has made her radiant. That is what has made her beautiful is his covenant love for her is what has made this woman to where everyone gazes upon her and finds her so beautiful. And as I was in this passage this week, I couldn't help but make this connection. In Exodus 34, verse 29, uh, it talks about Moses and his relationship with the Lord. And it says this, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets, that's the, the Ten Commandments, the law that God gave him to give the people, with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. So we have this picture of Moses, who is this man of God, who had this deep, special relationship with God back in the Old Testament, before the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on all of God's people. And when he would meet with God, it it says in Scripture that Moses would meet with God like a friend, like a man meets with his friend. And he didn't even realize it, but when he would come back from meeting with God, his face was essentially glowing. And I don't know what that means, but that was, it was so strange that it scared some people. And so he had to put on a veil. And so when he was not meeting with God in the privacy of, in the intimacy of their friendship, he would wear a veil so that he wouldn't freak everybody out. And so then we have this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul says, he's referring to this experience of Moses And he says, now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites couldn't gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? And what he's essentially saying is, look, what Moses got from God was so amazing and so special, but essentially what he got was the law. And the law is there to tell us this is how we are to live before God, and you can't do it. So essentially the law is there to show us that we have a deep need for a savior. And Paul's saying, if, if hearing about the ministry of death, if, if getting the law from God and knowing that you can't keep the law, if that made Moses's face shine, then what about now this side of the cross that Jesus has come and he has stood in our place and he has taken all of our sin away from us and he has taken all the wrath of God away from us because our inability to keep the law how much more will that, that ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit." 
So as we read this passage and we see what's happening with this woman, she is becoming radiant. She is becoming like the dawn. She's becoming like the light of the moon. She's becoming like the light of the sun. And people want to bask in her glory. What we can gather from this is that now in Christ, with the Holy Spirit living in us, how much more so is this true of us? How much more so is this the picture that was really being painted in the Song of Songs for all of those of us who are in Christ? That as we spend time with our Jesus, that he is making us, he's transforming us from one degree of glory to another into his very image, who is himself the son, who is himself the radiance of the father, who is himself the shining brilliance. We are being transformed little by little into the very same image. And she wants, because of the love and the effects of this love and of this man, she wants to spend time with him. She wants to steal away with him. Verse 11 and 12. If this is her experience, if this is what love with him does to her, don't you think she's going to want to go spend more time with him? She's like, this is great. Like doing life, doing the everyday life thing out in the world, that's, that's fine and good. But I'm always thinking about, I'm always wondering, I'm always, my curiosity, my thoughts, my desires are always just quietly leading me to wonder about when is the next time I get to spend time with him? When do we get to go be alone together and enjoy each other? When do I get to go hear him speak his words of love over me? That is what she's thinking about. That's that's where her desires take her. That's where the thoughts and the meditations of her heart take her. She wants to go meet her beloved in the garden of their love, the orchard, the vineyard. That's where she wants to be. And as she goes there in her mind, uh, she has, it's a little confusing, but in verse 12, it's, it's like she's, it's, it's so enraptured her that she has this image of riding on a chariot with him in war. And so back then, of course, chariots were like the weapon. I mean, that was like the, the tanks of the day or, or whatever it is now. I don't even know. But she is, is, you know, multiple people would ride on the platform of a chariot. And so in her mind, she is riding with her powerful king in this exciting moment of battle on a chariot. And that's where like her heart, the excitement of all of this takes her. But as she goes to be with him, all of the other people miss her. They want her to come back so that they can gaze on her. Return, return, O Shulamite. Return, return, that we may look upon you. I just want to stop there and say, that's the experience of of the people of God in the world. Or that's the design, at least is that we would be people who are radiant with the love of God. We would know how deeply we are loved by God, and we are being transformed by degrees, one degree of glory to another, into the image of Christ, and so that when we leave places, when we leave places of work, when we move to a different neighborhood, that people long for us, not because of who we are, but because of who we carry in us. That when we are absent, people are are missing us, And they're missing the radiance of Jesus in us because they're desirous of him. And so these people are saying, please come back so that we can look on you. And this is really cool. What he says in response to that at the end of chapter six is it's it's hard to understand the way it's written, but essentially what he says 
is, well, when she does come back from riding on this chariot in war with me, she's going to come back in victory, and you're going to see her doing this victory dance. And so uh, this, what's translated here, um, dance before two armies, this other translation is dance of Mahanaim, and this is like an, an actual dance that they would do in this culture that the women would do when the men came back from war victorious. It was this exuberant victory dance that they would do out in the streets. And he's saying, okay, but when she comes back, she's going to come back victorious. Uh, why? Because he has defeated all of her enemies. And when people see us, they're going to see us coming back victorious because Jesus has defeated all of our enemies. Deuteronomy 24 says, for the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you the victory. And some of us may have enemies out in this world, but we all have the enemies of death and sin and, and the awaiting judgment. No one can escape that. No one can escape the fact that we all die. No one can escape the fact that Christ is going to return in judgment. No one can escape the fact that there's a day coming where people will be separated, those who know him and who are in him and who are covered by him and those who are not. And no one can escape the fact that we are all eternal souls. And so what Jesus has done for us is he has defeated those enemies that we did not stand a chance against. 1 Corinthians 15 says this, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. So essentially, sin leads to death, and we can't stop sinning because there's something wrong with us. And so we, when we see the law, we run the other way because there's something broken in us. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that the Lord, in the Lord your labor is not in vain. What Paul is saying is Jesus has defeated all of our enemies. And so don't look at yourself. Do not look at your unfaithfulness. Do not look at your sin. Do not look at your shame. Do not spend time there. Because that has not changed at all how your Savior loves you and how he treats you and how he feels about you and the fact that you are married to him forever. So Paul's saying, no, no, no. Think about this, that all of your enemies have been defeated forever, so be steadfast and immovable in the love of God for you in Christ. Live there. Live out of that reality, and that is what will change us. He says in, in 2 Corinthians 2, thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. He's saying that you, like this woman in this passage, are being led through this triumphal procession through life because you have victory over all of your enemies in Christ. And as we go forth abounding, his love abounding for us, us experiencing, drinking in the, the dryness of our souls, being flushed with the love, love of God, that it's so much that it's overflowing, the, the fragrance of him is spreading throughout the world. Who is this God? Who is this God who does not treat his people as they deserve? Who is this God who does not demand that they serve him, but that he lays himself down and serves them? Who is this who can give us these things that we are desperate for, that we have searched and searched and searched out there in the world every day of our lives 
incessantly, running ourselves ragged, trying to find these things that we were made for and we can't find anywhere. Who is this God who freely gives those things? The fragrance of Jesus is spreading throughout the world through us as we enjoy his love for us. And this whole thought sets him off, the the beloved, it sets him off in chapter seven to just praising her more and loving her more. How beautiful, the summary of it is, how beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. Can you imagine Jesus saying that to you? This is a really important question. Can you imagine Jesus saying those words to you right now? How beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. And you may be thinking, there is no way he can say that to me because of who I am, because of what I've done, because of what I still do, because of how I look, because of how I feel, because of whatever. But let me tell you this. If you are in Christ, this is what Jesus says to you. And it has nothing to do with what you do or don't do. It has everything to do with his love and his covenant that he's made with us to set his love on us. And you've got to remember something. He is not like us. He is not bound by time and space. So what he accomplished on the cross and the resurrection, he sees it already. The, the degrees of glory that we are being transformed into, he sees the finished product already because he is not bound by linear time. So this is true already in some way. It is true, and he knows it, and he sees it, and he enjoys it. In verse 7 and verse 8 of of chapter 7, your stature is like a palm tree. Your breasts are like its clusters. I say I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. You know, when you read this, it makes you realize that Steve Miller band, Steve Miller is biblical. Like, I, I really love your peaches. And I want to shake your tree. That's, he got that from these verses right here. I'm just assuming the best for Steve. I assume this is what he was talking about. You know, the, the man doesn't just admire her. He's not content to just sit with her. He wants to be united to her. He wants to be as close as possible. I mean, think about the song we sang just a few minutes ago. Hearts unfold like flowers before thee. Y'all, that's a little bit sexual. There's There's an opening. We, the bride of Christ, there's an opening to God that happens with his people. And so, you know, it can get a little tricky when you hear these like sexual metaphors for God and people because it's like, you know, it's, it's not this weird, gross thing of God wanting to have sex with humans. That's not what we're talking about. But don't miss what we are talking about. Remember, God is the author of marriage. He's the author of covenant love. He is the author of sex. He's made our bodies to enjoy sex. He's, he's created all of this And what he is saying, just like he says about marriage in in Ephesians 5, is I am giving you this as a gift and something that points to what is really the true thing between you and I. 
as great as covenant sex is, there is a covenant union between God and his people that is different from that. But there's nothing else on earth that's like it enough to, so that I'm going to point to this and say, this is the, the human physical world experience that I can give you, that I can point to and say, as, as amazing as this is, as rich as this is, as life-giving as this is, when it is functioning in a healthy way, what you and I have waiting for us after Christ's return is even more. That's what he's saying. He's saying you have no idea what awaits you forever with me in my presence. So, so one thing we want to take from this is that God is the author and chief enjoyer of joy and pleasure and delight and intimacy. God's primary focus is not efficiency because love is not efficient. His primary focus is abundant love. And actually, we're the ones who have a problem. We're the ones who have dead hearts. We're the ones who have desire problems. We're the ones who are very limited, and we need to go to him and learn how to enjoy and how to delight because he, he is the one. We're the ones that are obsessed with efficiency because we've been hurt, and we don't, we don't want to risk it anymore, and so we just close down. But so often, we want to deflect and put that on God. He's the killjoy. He's not. We are. He is the holder of all life. He is the one that says that the pleasures forevermore are in his right hand. That's who God is. And the last thing I want to uh, note about what he says to her here is that her breath is like apples and her mouth is like the best wine. Um, those are images that she used of him before. She said, you're like an apple tree. Your love is like wine. And essentially what's happening here is, again, another picture of it's his love that's changing her. It's her enjoying his love that is transforming her and reshaping her and making her more beautiful. And so this is it. This is everything right here. Chapter 7, verse 10. I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. For you and me, this is everything. All, all of this, all of this is that. And if it's not that, then you're not reading it right. That is everything. That I am my beloved's. I am Jesus's. And his desire is for me. He loves me always. It's never changing. It's never ending. I belong to him always. And his desire is for me always. We collectively belong to him always. His desire is for us always. That's it. That's it. Just to enjoy, to know, enjoy, and grow in that. Live into that and live out of that. That is everything. And this love, the security, frees her up to invite him in. Come, my beloved, let's go enjoy each other. Let's go away from the noise. Let's go see the world. Let's go adventure together. Let's just go be together. It's not about getting things checked off the spiritual to-do list. 
You know, so often, I don't know if you're like me, but I can fall into the trap of like when I spend time with Jesus, it's like a, it's like a self-help project. And if you notice what you're spending your time talking to him about, it can be very uh, lacking in intimacy. It can be, hey, would you just help me with all these things out here? Would you just fix my circumstances for me? Thank you. And also, okay, not just that, but would you fix me too? Like, would you make me more this way, make me more that way? Those prayers, neither of those types of prayers are wrong. But if that's all we ever experience, we're missing everything. Because do you know that he loves you as you are right now? He's not going to leave you as you are, but he's not waiting for you to get better to love you more. So if we never just sit with him and enjoy that, enjoy him and enjoy his love for us, please come Wednesday night or Thursday night, whichever it is. Wednesday. Come Wednesday. If you come Thursday, it'll just be quieter. Um, That's why we're doing this. Like you can't depend on Midtown West to make all of this happen, but we certainly want to do things that like aid in you moving towards Jesus and the love that he has for you. And that's really the whole purpose of Wednesday night is to create a space for you to enjoy that reality. This uh, John Donne, a famous poet from a long time ago, wrote these holy sonnets and Listen to these lines. Batter my heart, three-person to God. Take me to you, imprison me, for I, except that you enthrall me, shall never be free. And I'll never be chaste, I'll never be holy, except that you ravish me. Like if I don't ever get to the place where we're just enjoying intimacy, I can't access all the things I can't access all of Jesus. I can't access the very thing that I was made for. So, the last few verses here, she's just talking about the fruit of them being together, the fruit of enjoying love. And she says, I have this fruit that is old and new. It's this beautiful picture of as we are loved by him and we love him in return, he produces fruit in our lives. He produces inward fruit. Think about the fruit of the spirit. Like he transforms us and makes us different, patient, good, loving, kind, joyful, peaceful. But he also produces fruit out in the world through the work of our hands, the work in this community, in the world, through our relationships and making disciples and just doing good work out in the world. He creates, he makes us beautiful and he creates beauty in the world through us. And so, of course, the invitation is to come and plant yourself in him, to come and plant yourself in his love for you and let him transform you and mature you and grow you and grow beautiful fruit in you and through you and to enjoy the life that he's made you for. I was going to do this for longer, but we're, we're running out of time. But I want to just take a few moments here, and I want to ask you all to just close your eyes and think about verse 10, and just make that personal and just meditate on that reality. If you are someone who is in Christ... You are your beloved's, and his desire is for you. Would you just sit with this, and and hopefully this will be an appetizer for 
more time later. Jesus, lover of our souls. Forgive us for running after everything else except for you. Lord, would you help do the things that we can't do in our lack of self-control? Would you come and would you increase our faith? Would you help us to believe that this is true and this is who you are and this is how we'll be received in your presence? Lord, for those who are in this room who don't know you, would you reveal yourself to them and would you draw them to you? For those of us who do know you, Lord, would you tear down all the noise and all the lies that we tell and other people tell about who you are and how limited your love is? Lord, would you, would you gently lead us as, as we start walking on the path of self-improvement with you, would you gently lead us to just take time to just be in your presence? to enjoy you? Would you lead us to carve out time in our weeks and our days to just go away with you? Lord, and in our months and our years, would you, would you lead us to carve out days and nights where we go away with just you and spend extended time together, just like a husband and a wife need that time? Lord, so we, your bride with you, need that time. Would you lead us to a deeper enjoyment of you? In Jesus' name, amen.